This is The Podcast Method, and I'm Dan Benjamin. On this show, I answer your questions about podcasting, recording, audio and video equipment, software, mic technique, pre- and post-production, workflows, and more. I appreciate you listening so much, and I appreciate those of you who have taken the time to tweet me. I'm at Dan Benjamin, and when you tweet me there and you've got a question, use the hashtag podcast method. That way I'll see it, and I'll be able to answer it right here on this very program. Again, I really do appreciate you listening. I appreciate the uh, great reviews that all of you have been adding in iTunes. I say it many, many times, and uh, I even read a joke recently. Someone online said, uh, why is it that podcasters are always asking us to leave reviews on iTunes? When did that start? Well, uh, I, I don't know if I started it or not, but I know the reason that we do it is because uh, it makes a huge difference in generating that buzz that can be enough to get a show that's maybe been around uh, for a little while to show up in new and noteworthy or show up as a top podcast. It's very tricky to do that. It takes a lot of uh, a lot of attention, a lot of new subscriptions, a lot of reviews, but that's what drives things up into into that layer of visibility on iTunes. And iTunes is definitely a source for a lot of people as far as where they go to find a new show. So it really helps. And those of you who have left a rating or left a review or even just subscribed in iTunes. It means a lot and it really helps and I appreciate it. Now I have a whole list of topics I'm still working through, but this time I wanted to uh, reverse the order and do questions first, questions first. So let me just jump in. Some of these are new questions. Some of these go back as far as May uh, of 2015 and they're just things I haven't gotten to yet. And for those listening in the far flung future, it's November of 2015 as I record this. So uh, hopefully in decades and eons in the future, this show will still be valuable to people. Imagine people in the year 2115 referring back to our podcasts that we're making today. Do you think that'll happen? That's the kind of uh, content we want to create, but I doubt it. Anyway, let's get started. The first question I have here is from Richard Warfield Jr. Mac Dracker? Mac Dracer? He says, not a question, but can you speak to the importance of a release or a contract for interview guests and co-hosts? Now, back in May, I touched on this subject very briefly, but I wanted to kind of revisit it because I feel like podcasting is always changing, right? I just was, uh, I could spend the whole show just talking about this great experience that I had. All of my life, I've always wanted to do uh, a wonderful uh, late night talk show. It's been one of the goals and uh, dreams that I've always had. And I had a little taste of it. I, I got an opportunity to go to the amazing FutureStack conference, which is put on by New Relic uh, way up in San Francisco. And uh, they invited me out to moderate some panels. And uh, just a short period of time before they were bringing me out, they said, yeah, Dan, there's something else we want you to do besides just mo moderating a panel or two. I said, okay, what? I said, well, I don't know if you saw the announcement, but... Uh, Weird Al is going to be performing at the Fillmore for all of our attendees. We're about 1,000, 1,200 people. And uh, afterwards, on the last day of the conference, the, to kind of close down the show, we were wondering if you might want to interview him on stage. Uh, yeah, I think I would like to interview Weird Al on stage. So we did it, and we did it in a Tonight Show uh, setup. I had a nice desk up there. We had Weird Al. We also had the CEO of uh, New Relic, Lou Cerny. And uh, I, I interviewed both of them, spent most of the time talking to, to Weird Al about how he has disrupted the music industry, the way that those of us who podcast are disrupting 
uh, radio and disrupting the music industry and disrupting everything else. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, and, and it's, it's one of those things that, gosh, how do you prepare for an interview like that? One of your, one of the people who's been tremendously influential in your life, one of the people who you just have admired and enjoyed the work that they do for so long. Well, the way that you do it is you research and in that, in Weird Al's case, it meant I got to listen to a lot of Weird Al music that I hadn't listened to in many years and really enjoyed, listened to it with my son who's seven, who really enjoys it. And what a great experience that was. The reason that I bring this up now in the context of legality and contract is I did this on stage in front of a couple thousand people and uh, the great folks at New Relic had an incredibly high quality, high level production team up there. Their backstage looked like NASA. You know what I'm saying? It looked like CNN back there. They had cameras and, uh, and, and tons and tons of monitors. It was just an amazing high quality production. And so I figured, well, their turnaround time to get this video out is going to be pretty quick, right? Like, they'll have it tomorrow. No, I'm sure the video was done, but it's not out. It hasn't been released. Why hasn't it been released? It's in their legal department. I don't know what that means. I don't even know what legal could be doing to look at a, at a, what was a wonderful sort of fireside chat between me and Weird Al and their CEO. But you know what? Legal is overlooking it. And it just, it, it just reminded me that what we as sort of podcasters um, just sort of sitting here uh, in a room using Skype, talking to somebody else sitting there in their room, we don't really need contracts for that, right? Well, maybe we do. So it's definitely something I want to mention. I want to talk through because it's such a good, uh, a good topic to at least be familiar with because, and here's why, most of the things that we say are protected by free speech here in the United States and it's likewise in many other countries. But if somebody were to publicly defame somebody else or a product or a service, you never know. We, we live in a very litigious world and you just want to make sure that you are not going to be held responsible for something that maybe a guest says, for example. Um, so having some kind of contract in which the guest signs it and says, I'm responsible for the things that I say, that, that might be advised. Now, I'm not going to tell you whether or not you need this uh, or not. I'm going to leave that up to the lawyers out there. So I would actually love to hear from you if you're a lawyer and you know about this kind of thing. Please uh, tweet me or email me, um, dan at 5x5.tv if you want to email me, and tell me what the laws are on this, and I will relay them to the audience. But until then, I would say listeners, podcasters, fellow podcasters, look into this if it's something that you're concerned about. I can tell you that in six years of doing this with hundreds of different guests across those years, I've never run into a situation where there was a, where a, a company or person wanted to sue because of something that we said because of the freedom of speech stuff. There was only one time when I had somebody say to me, oh, you know, that thing that I said, could you edit that out before you take the show live? I feel bad about that, and I, I don't want that to comment to go out. It was a person asking me to do that, and of course I did it. Uh, I didn't have to do it, because they knew that I was recording the whole thing, and that it was going out on the internet, but I did it because I liked the person, and uh, I understood what they wanted. So, you know, generally speaking, there is that good that sense of goodwill that's out there, but just something to keep in mind as you uh, as you record with somebody that maybe that's something you would want to look into. It's definitely something worth considering and worth thinking about. Oh, Potter, 
underscore Potter underscore on Twitter says, I just finished episode one of the podcast method. Amazing insights about Mike. Dan, do you have an opinion about the road podcaster, Mike? I've talked about this before. The reason I bring it up and go back to this ancient uh, tweet about it again is because some more people have been asking me this question. This is just the first occurrence of it that I could find. Dan, what's up with the road podcaster, Mike? You used to recommend it, dude. Why don't you recommend it anymore? Here's what I found is that Years ago, and I would say more than three years ago, maybe four years ago, the Rode Podcaster mics were fantastic. I recommended them over most other USB mics because they are dynamic mics, which I feel are the best suited for podcasting, far better for podcasting, in my opinion, than condenser mics because they only pick up what's right in front of them. That's what they're designed to do. They don't pick up uh, very much room noise or you don't get audio leakage if you have multiple people recording in the same room. So I have recommended them. But then something seems to have happened. Quality seems to have gone down. I didn't experience this directly, but a lot of people were tweeting me and emailing me and saying, hey, I got this podcast, uh, this Rode Podcaster mic, this USB uh, dynamic mic, because you recommended it, and it's not great. And I would listen to the recordings, and I thought, you know what? That isn't great. Something maybe has changed. I don't know if there was a batch of these that went out that weren't great, if they changed something with their production. I just don't know, but it's no longer a mic that I recommend because it seems like Rode was experiencing some issues with those. That may have cleared up, and if it has, I would put this mic back uh, high on my list of uh, USB dynamic mics to recommend, but I just wanted to, I don't want to call it a warning, but just if you've read my recommendations in the past and you've wondered where that went or you're thinking about getting one of these mics, I might think twice about it until uh, we get a definitive answer as to how is the quality improved? Is it back to the way that it used to be of what we would have expected? Logan Cisco at Low Cisco asks, okay, Dan, if my podcast becomes popular, big if, how do I shop it around to podcast networks? Well, first of all, I don't think you should say that's a big if. I think you should believe in yourself and believe in the thing that you're making and be positive, although it sounds like you are being positive. So let's change your question to say when my podcast becomes popular, how do I shop it around to podcast networks? Well, first, let me ask you this. Why would you want to shop it around to a podcast network? The only reason that I do a podcast network is because I have a handful of shows because I do this for a living and no one single uh, show that I do is enough to, uh, to, to fund everything that we want to do around here. So I have to do more than one show. Now, if I all of a sudden I could do one show and that one show would generate all the income that we need. Well, gosh, I would only do one show. I do lots of shows, though, because, of course, it's fun and I get to talk to really interesting people. But a big part of it is I've got bills to pay. I've, uh, you know, I have an employee. I've got an intern. I've got rent in our tiny little studio that we used to record in. And I have a family. So I need to do more work. And more work means more shows. But uh, that's why I run a podcast network. The benefit of having a network that exists already is that I can extend that network to people who I'm friends with or who I believe have a phenomenal podcast. And I can say, hey, we can help with some of these details that are kind of hard to do, whether it's the posting of stuff or whether it's selling or whatever infrastructure, uh, we can help with that stuff. And you can make the network better by having your show on it. Uh, but that's not, I wouldn't, be doing a network if I didn't already have a need for a network, if that makes sense. I think starting a podcast network in 2015 
uh, would would not be a great idea. Uh, I, I think the individual podcast we're seeing, if if we haven't already seen it for some time, we're seeing the rise of the individual podcast uh, when a lot of media figures, uh, Bill Simmons is a perfect example of this. When these media figures say, I'm going to do a podcast or I'm going to do my own podcast, those are the, are the big rising stars and they certainly don't need a network. But if you feel that your show does need a network because there are hurdles that you don't want to face, whether it's advertising or infrastructure or whatever, those are good reasons to potentially join with a network. What makes a show interesting to a network uh, to, as far as from the standpoint of joining, if, if it was not created within the context of a network, but if you are seeking to join a network, well, in that case, I, I think what you need to bring is you need to bring a big-sized audience with you already. So your show needs to be relatively successful already or it needs to represent a demographic that would be interesting to that podcast network. And I'll give you an example of that. A non-tech show that appeals to women. That is a very, and I know this because we sell ads every single day. And a lot of our sponsors are like, we're really looking for an audience that's primarily women that's not in tech. We're asked for that all the time. Well, we can't just snap our fingers and create that show. I'm just giving you an example. So if you have a niche market like that, that you can bring and you have a decent audience, a loyal audience, an engaged listener base, that should be, I would think, very appealing to a podcast network and they would want to bring you in. But you need to bring the numbers. You, you, your, your show with 1,500 listeners may not be that exciting to a podcast network that has shows that do 50, 60, 100,000 downloads per episode. Uh, just something to consider. As an addendum to that question, I wanted to share my own note. And my own note is one of the topics that I have. And that is when you're talking to folks about Number of downloads per episode. You, you, I'm sorry, number of downloads. You want to give number of downloads per episode. Don't worry so much about how many downloads over three months. Don't total up all of the episodes that come out in a month. Don't tell me how many downloads your show does in a month collectively. Those numbers don't matter because that's not how podcasts are sold. They are sold based on unique downloads per episode. Unique meaning individual human beings, as best as we can determine that with modern software, per episode. And we want to know that generally over the course of a, a month, although sponsors are much more focused on the first week of downloads. So if you're pitching your show to get it sponsored, you want to work with us at Archer Avenue, you want us to sell for you, we might be, may, might be able to do that for you. You want to join a podcast network of some kind. You've got to say, we're getting 10,000 unique downloads per episode. I'm going to assume that that happens in the first 30, either seven or 30 days. Uh, and, and that's, but those numbers, that's what I want to know. That, that's the one figure that sponsors will want to know if you're going to want to get sponsored. So keep, keep that number in mind when you're there. Oh, we get uh, 50,000 downloads per month. Well, that's neat. Is that one episode? Is that all of the episodes that came out that month? Is that every episode you've ever done totaled up for the whole number of that? Those don't mean anything to anybody. They might mean something to you because it's a neat number, but just be honest with the unique downloads that you're getting per episode. That's the number you've got to tell yourself, and that's the number you want to see growing, and that's that's how you're going to get sponsored. Steve Thomas at Steve librarian on Twitter says, when is the best time to make your podcast an official business like an LLC as opposed to a personal project? 
And I answered him on Twitter when he asked me this, but I knew that I was going to talk about it on this episode. Uh, it's a fantastic question, but it's also a really good question I might answer on Quit, the podcast I do about like startups and starting something awesome and quitting your, your day job to do something great. I love talking about these kinds of topics, so I, I have to keep a little bit of a thumb on how much I talk about them here because it does fall a little bit outside the context of this show. I will answer it, though, as concisely as I can, and that is to say when it's generating a reasonable income for you, that doesn't mean it's enough to replace your full-time job. But if you get to a quarter or half of what you might be making and that's continuing to grow, then it might make sense to consider incorporating it. You have to ask yourself a lot of questions, though, as far as why you might want to incorporate it. Incorporating something, uh, it, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. And depending on the, the structure that you choose, whether it is an LLC or an S corporation or an S election for an LLC, all of that stuff varies depending on what state you live in. And of course, if you're overseas, gosh, I don't know how it will work there. But here in the States, I mean, that's a responsibility because a company is a, is, becomes an entity. It is something that will need to have its own taxes. It will need to have its own bank account. It will need to, and so you've got to ask yourself, why, why would I be doing that? Should you do that for $10,000 a year? I would say no. I would say probably not. Should you do it for 30000 a year, 50000 a year? Well, yeah, now you're really talking. But that implies that you're making that money. It, it costs money to incorporate. It costs money to keep a company. It costs time to keep a company. You're no longer able to go and use, you know, like a basic tax program, accounting program uh, on your computer to do your taxes. You might need to hire an actual, uh, you know, a real accountant now if you don't already have one. You might need to see a tax attorney to help you pick the right structure for your company. Uh, all of these things are, are important steps to do if you really see that there's a business growing. But the longer you can avoid having to do that. Uh, the longer I would say avoid having to do it. It sounds neat. Like, cool, I have a company. Like, my podcast was so successful. It's like, it is a company now. And I agree, that that is kind of cool. But maybe wait until you don't, you, you can't not do it anymore. Wait until there's a significant advantage or a tax advantage for you to do it. But here's what I would say for you to do, regardless of how big uh, your podcast is. No matter what, Keep very, very, very accurate documentation for how much you make for your show, whether that money is coming in through PayPal or Patreon or Memberful or whether you're selling spots on the show, whatever it is, keep very, very good records of all of that. Because if you suddenly start to show some additional income when you didn't have any before, whether that's 5K or 50K, you've got to show where that's coming from. Another thing that's really important is always set aside a large chunk of that money because that money's not coming to you the way that it would if you're an employee where the deductions are being taken out of your paycheck, whether that's uh, FICA or Social Security or whatever other taxes you might need to pay in your state. This is a completely separate scenario here. You need to take that money out and set it aside so that at the end of the year when you report that income, you can pay taxes, which you will not have paid on that income as well. And how much should you set aside? Don't trust me. Go talk to a tax attorney. Go talk to an accountant. But the rule of thumb is about a third of it. Again, don't <laughs> just try, take my word for it. Go talk to a professional about that. But uh, So that means $30 for every 100, 300 for every 1,000, et cetera. 
you want to set aside and not spend so that you will be prepared when uh, Uncle Sam comes looking for that money. Christian Golden, C underscore D underscore Golden on Twitter says, any specifics for computer specs for podcasting? And what Christian Golden is asking is, like, what kind of computer should I be using when I'm podcasting? But you didn't tell me exactly which aspect of podcasting you were asking about. Are you asking about the machine that you use to record? Are you asking about what you might use for a Skype machine that you've got plugged into a mixer to handle a remote guest? I really don't know. So I'm going to assume that you're asking about recording. You would be surprised, especially if you're using something like a, like a mixer, like a Firewire or Thunderbolt mixer or even a USB mixer. You can plug that into pretty much any computer. Now, I'm all Mac. I've been Mac uh, really since the, back in the early, early, early days. Even when I spent my day job uh, running an IT network full of almost exclusively hundreds and hundreds of Windows PCs, I always had a Mac at home because I like Macs better. But you may have a PC. Unfortunately, I can't give you any advice about what software you might use on a PC or what the requirements would be for a PC. It's just not the space that I'm in. I'm sorry about that. Uh, But as far as the Mac goes, you would be absolutely astounded at how little you really need in order to very successfully record multiple tracks of audio all at one time. The two applications that I recommend most for recording on a Mac, Logic Pro 10 and Pro Tools, which I think is up to version 11 now. I'm not using Pro Tools anymore. I'm using Logic. It just works better for our workflow. You could use GarageBand. You could use anything that you want. But I'm talking about software that handles uh, recording multiple tracks at the same time, usually through a mixer of one kind or another, whether it's a digital mixer or uh, a physical, you know, like analog mixer like a Mackie. And you plug one of those things in. Our primary recording machine here is and has been for five or six years uh, a Mac Mini. Now, there was a little while where it was a Mac Pro. But I switched, quickly switched to a Mac Mini, and that's all that I've got. I've got a Mac Mini with an internal hard drive, and, uh, and I, I usually am recording anywhere from, in this case right now, one track, all the way up to three, four tracks simultaneously, and it could do many more. No problem at all. It, it chugs along just fine. Now, I don't do my editing on a Mac Mini. For that, I generally use, uh, on my desk, I'm lucky enough to have a Mac Pro, but uh, you know, a MacBook Pro is excellent for that. And gosh, maybe your iPad Pro will do the job of mixing multi-track. There's a new app called Ferrite that I'm just starting to look at that might be able to do that job. But uh, yes, you absolutely could edit with the Mac Mini. We just, that's not our workflow and our setup. Uh, so the specs don't have to be a lot. You just need a decent disk and a very low CPU. It's mainly just audio throughput and spinning the disk as you record. Before I get to the next question, I have to thank our sponsor. I'm very proud to have Hover.com as a sponsor of this show. They've been sponsoring our shows for quite a while, and they're back with some really, really cool offers. You know, you need a great domain name, right? You've got, a, you've got that new podcasting company, right? Or you've got that new podcast that you just came out with. Or who knows what your idea might be, but you want to go and secure a domain name for it. It's a really good idea because you never know when your idea is going to take off and be big and you'll wish you had that domain name and it'll be gone. Well, a lot of the .coms and .nets are gone, but there are so many other TLDs, domain name extensions that are out there. 
So many. You probably have no idea how many. I know I didn't. So here's what you do. You go to hover.com. And when you're there, there's a little search box. It works just like Google, but it's for domain names. So you type in the name that you want. Leave off the .com, .net, whatever. Just type the word or type a group of words or type a phrase. And hover, they'll come back with tons and tons of suggestions based on that word or phrase that you type in. Tons and tons, not just the .coms and .nets, but all the crazy ones. I mean, everything from like .tv, .fm, .io. They've even got .pizza, .studio. I mean, you name it, they will search for all of them and find all of them and show you exactly what's available. It's a fantastic service. It's my favorite domain name registrar, and I would love for you to check it out. In fact, if you do and you use the code podcast method, one word, you're going to get 10% off your first purchase. So again, go to Hover, H-O-V-E-R, Hover.com, and use the code podcast method at checkout. Your first purchase will be 10% off, even if that's 50 domains. So go there and check it out. Thanks very much to Hover. Craig Gilchrist, same name on Twitter, says, what's a good CPM for advertisers to pay? CPMs, boy, I'll tell you, it is really hard to come out with an average because even just the shows that I do, depending on, uh, on, on who is on the show, what we talk about, the number of downloads, how engaged the listeners are, all of these are how well it's promoted by the hosts of the show, how well it's promoted on iTunes. All of these things are big factors that are involved in determining exactly what kind of CPM we can charge. Every sponsor also has a target CPM that they want to get. The bigger the sponsor, the more money they have, the smaller the CPM is that they're willing to pay. It's fascinating, but that's just the way that it works. We see CPMs as low as 15 and as high as 50. Very tough to get those 50 ones nowadays. But if you're, if you're Bill Simmons, you can get a 50 CPM. If you're not Bill Simmons, you probably can't. What should your target be? I think 20, 25 is a good starting point. But again, this industry has changed so much. Although podcast advertising is so much more successful for sponsors than website advertising. It's still, there are lots and just keep in mind, think of it from the standpoint of your sponsor. If you have a business and you're spending your hard-earned money on advertising, you want it to be the most effective, but you're going to want to spread that around. You don't just want to invest in one podcast. You want to invest in five or 10 or 20. And there's so many great podcasts out there. So we as podcasters are absolutely competing for that business. And what drives competition? Price. And a lot of the time, lower price will win. If I'm thinking about advertising on three different shows about uh, knitting and they all get 10,000 downloads per episode. Am I going to pick the one that made me laugh more than the others? Sure, maybe. Or am I just going to pick the one that, that look, that's 10,000 downloads, 10,000 different people. That becomes a commodity. Which one's going to give me that 10,000 for less? That's the one I'm going to go with. I'm not saying it should be that way. I'm not saying it will stay that way. I'm saying very frequently it is that way. JBITS11, J-B-I-T-Z-11 on Twitter. What do you use to put show title data on your MP3s? Well, what JBITS is asking me 
is if you were to download an episode of any of the shows on 5x5, for example, and you were to inspect that file, perhaps in iTunes or in any MP3 player directly, or even from the desktop, Command-I will do that for you on the Mac, and you look at that file, you're going to see that that MP3 file embedded, embedded in the MP3 file, after it's been downloaded, you'll see their show art. And in fact, the icon for that MP3 file will be the show art. And if you inspect it or you look at it in iTunes, that standalone file, that file that has been downloaded and lives somewhere else now, will have the title, it'll have the author, and me usually, or 5 by 5 or the other hosts of the show. All of that information, description, everything is embedded in the file. How do you do that? Well, there are a few different ways to do it. One way to do it is when you are bouncing the file or editing the file, your application might let you do that. Another way to do it is to take that file that you've just bounced, that is exported from your audio editing program, take it into something like iTunes and set those things yourself. Then find that file that you just edited through iTunes and upload that file. The final way to do it would be to spend three or four years building your own custom CMS and build all of that functionality into the CMS so that whenever you upload your file, it's going to be smart enough to take your show art and embed it and take all the information that you entered onto the, uh, onto the new episode page and embed that into the MP3 file when you upload it. If you don't have three years to build something like that, slowly improving it day by day, week by week, year by year, then uh, sit tight for a little bit longer because the system that I've been working on will do all of that for you. And we're very close to launch. But in the meantime, you can use iTunes to do it. You can also, I, I believe, I, I'm pretty sure Logic 10 will do it when you bounce. Uh, GarageBand will do it. So there, there are other ones you just need to, you need to take that extra step. And it's definitely a step worth taking because sometimes those files do kind of get orphaned or passed around. And it'll always keep the show art and the data right there with that file. Speaking of this system, Tim Bornholt asks, is the new thing that you're building something that's self-hostable or are you hosting it? Uh, we, we are building out a huge infrastructure with CDNs and everything else uh, behind the scenes to host everything. It's, it's got CDNs, it's got Amazon, it's got you name it, it's going to be uh, a full stack solution. It's not something I'll be like putting the code up on GitHub uh, for you to download it and install yourself. This is not that kind of thing. Uh, Tim has another question. He says, I'm recording two hosts in the same room with two mics. Should I record with two laptops or can I use one? What I don't know is what kind of mics do you have? Are they USB mics or... Are they not? Are they going through a mixer or not? My suggestion when you're recording more than one person is at that in the same room, at that point, switch and use some kind of mixer. It could be one of the amazing mixers by Focusrite. There's the Scarlet. There's the Sapphire. Doesn't really matter which one you pick. Uh, there's tons of much more expensive options. You could get a Mackie mixer, tons of other choices. Apollo Twin. Lots of things you can choose from. But uh, I would suggest using something like that, which is designed for multi-track recording, and then use a multi-track recording application. If what you're saying is, we already have two USB mics, can I just plug them both into the same computer and record both of them? Yes, you can do that. 
And I would suggest doing that. It may, it's actually easier because the, the audio drift issue that I've talked about a number of times before, you'll eliminate the audio drift issue by recording both of those in something like GarageBand or Logic or Adobe Audition or whatever it is that you like to record with. Uh, you can usually pick those two inputs as different sources for the different tracks. So that's what you want to do and make sure the application and software that you're using allows for that. You want to pick mic one for track one, mic two for track two, and that type of thing. Last question for this week is from Abraham Levitan, who's got the same name on Twitter. Are the Zoom's built-in effects worth using? He's talking specifically, he, he mentions the Zoom H5's built-in compression and things like that. And I've mentioned, so for those who, uh, who don't know what I'm talking about, these Zooms are these little, they're sort of handheld recording devices. They have their own built-in microphones, but you can also plug in two XLR microphones. They're great for, uh, really great for field recording. And they're really great for low-budget recording. If you don't want to get some kind of expensive mixer or digital input, They've got USB jacks so that you can plug them right into your computer and record multi-track that way. Really, really handy devices. And uh, they're not cheap. They're in the two to $300 range, uh, but they're really, really wonderful. And, uh, and, and he's asking, do you recommend using like their own built-in compression and things like that? Uh, my recommendation is no. I recommend not uh, putting compression on them. The compression and other things that are built into these are okay. But you're probably going to get much better results using the compression or EQ and fine-tuning the compression and EQ inside of your uh, editing app. Again, I'll, I'll point it. Logic is a good example of that. Pro Tools, of course, and Audition. Lots of other apps, uh, applications out there allow you to really, really tweak, customize, and use advanced compression and EQ filters to really improve the quality of the sound rather than relying on the Zoom to do that. The one exception I would say is if you're using audio editing software that doesn't have that, or you're not using audio editing software at all, you're just going to be like exporting it as an MP3 and putting it out there in the world, then in that case, I would they would be better than nothing, probably. But my recommendation is leave all of that off, record it in its natural state, and then go to town editing it and making it sound fantastic uh, behind the scenes in post-production. Well, that's all I've got for this week's episode. I sure do appreciate you listening. Please remember, you can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Benjamin. Use the hashtag podcast method when you're asking me questions or leaving me comments about the show. So I'll make sure that I will see them when I'm doing show prep for the next episode. Again, thanks for everyone who has left a review over there in iTunes. It sure does help. And a huge thanks, even bigger thanks if that's possible. To all the people who donate their hard-earned money to support this show. This show and 5x5 absolutely does uh, rely on your support, listener support, as well as our sponsors. And if, uh, especially if the sponsors aren't interesting to you uh, and you just want to help out, we sure do appreciate it. The way to do that, patreon.com slash 5x5. And that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash 5x5. Donate a dollar a month. Donate a dollar per episode. Whatever you think is fair. Donate a hundred bucks a month. Why not? I think I think you could. Check with your wife first. But whatever you decide to donate, I sure do appreciate it. We all appreciate it. And uh, 
keep in touch. We'll be back next week.